number one, don't obey in advance, is is the most important lesson. It's really the master lesson because if you do obey in advance, that is, if you normalize, if you take a step forward towards what you think the new leader is going to want, then the other 19 lessons are lost on you. Then the other 19 lessons are meaningless to you. There's a very important moral lesson that we have from history, particularly from the history of 1933, that the Nazi takeover in Germany, which is that during these kinds of regime changes, citizens, average citizens, people have more authority than they realize because what they can do is withhold consent. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. On today's show, we talk with Timothy Snyder. Professor Snyder is the Levin Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, and Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. Professor Snyder is also a member of the Committee on Conscience of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and a permanent fellow of the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. About one month after Donald Trump was inaugurated, Tim Duggan Books, an imprint of the Crown Publishing Group at Penguin Random House, published Professor Snyder's newest book, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. The book quickly shot to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. In it, Professor Snyder reminds us that democracy can fail and has failed. He walks us through the rather frightening parallels that exist between our current reality here in the United States and the reality faced by 20th century Europeans. While he argues that we're no wiser than those Europeans who saw democracy yield to fascism, Nazism, or communism, he says that our one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. Professor Snyder, thank you for writing this book, and thanks so much for joining us today on The Resistors. Thanks. If you were to sit down and write this book today rather than a year ago, would you change anything at all? I wouldn't change anything. I mean, the the... I'm really happy with the way that it is, which is to say that I'm, you know, unhappy with the state of the world. But but I, I am happy with the way that it is because, you know, what I, what I was trying to do was to give voice to um, people who had resisted fascism or people who had resisted communism or you know people who I know who are resisting uh, modern or postmodern forms of authoritarianism right now. And I was trying to crystallize this into into generic you know forms of action which would be appropriate against various kinds of regime changes and which would even be appropriate if nothing bad was going on i mean all, pretty much everything in the book would make sense to do even if even if life were were all honky dory which of course it's not so no i wouldn't change a thing the only it, now that i've said that all categorically and grandly i will make two minor exceptions the, the one thing which occurred to me right after i published it which i regret not doing is that in, in the sections in the middle of the book, which are about investigation and about truth, and where, where I talk about the, the internet and the problems of the internet, I wish I'd added one sentence about internet bullying, where I had recommended that, you know, should the president or someone in authority use the internet to bully some private individual, that we all should then come to the rescue of that private individual. I wish, I wish I'd said that one sentence in there. And then in lesson nine, let's see, what is it, 19 about patriotism? You know, I start that lesson by giving examples of how the Trump campaign was subordinate to 
um, the Russian Federation. If I, uh, if I were writing it today, I would have even better and more beautiful examples simply because we know more. That's the only thing I'm tempted to do. Um, but, 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 but no, I mean, basic, I mean, my basic answer is that it's a political tract, you know, which was meant to, meant to be useful. And I think it, I think it still is. And it's really, I mean, it's what's, what's so gratifying for me is that I keep, I keep hearing from people. It's, a, it's now, we're now a year on out. I keep hearing from people about the 20 lessons and that like that gives me the sense that it's worth doing what I'm doing. Well, let's go right to the lessons, especially for those who haven't read the book. And if they haven't, I highly recommend that they do. Uh, there are 20 of them, so we can't cover them all on this podcast. But I wonder if there's one lesson that stands out above all the others for you. Well, I mean, the, the 20 are in the order that they're in for, for a reason. N- number one, don't obey in advance is, is the most important lesson. It's really the master lesson because if you do obey in advance, that is, if you normalize, if you take a step forward towards what you think the new leader is going to want, then the other 19 lessons are lost on you. Then the other 19 lessons are meaningless to you. There's a very important moral lesson that we have from history, particularly from the history of 1933, the, the Nazi takeover in Germany, which is that during these kinds of regime changes, citizens, average citizens, people have more authority than they realize because what they can do is withhold consent. You know, it, it turns out, and this is one of the things historians agree on, that all of the implicit ways of giving consent, the, the looking away, you know, the silences, the crossing the street to avoid contact, um, the avoidance of conversation, um, the acceptance of radicalism, the 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 not removal of the swastika or whatever it might be on 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 the side of a building. That those kinds of things matter hugely, and so it, what, what, that that moral lesson means that you know means practically that at the moment of regime change, which is our moment where we are now what the individual has to be able to do is to say, this is not normal. I'm not going along with this. I'm not sure just yet what I'm going to do, you know, and that's what lessons two through 19 are for, but I'm going to recognize this state of affairs as not being normal. I'm going to catch myself and I'm going to prevent myself from doing the natural human thing of adjusting, which is the natural human thing. And it's appropriate in most circumstances. And like the human act, the individuating act, the political act is to say, no, I'm going to catch myself. I'm not going to adjust. I'm going to, I'm going to make myself into, you know, a, a, a small example for, for other people, right? So lesson one, don't obey in advance is, 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 the, most, is the most important for, for, for all of those reasons. A couple of the other lessons in the book that I think moved me the most, specifically number 12 and number 13, which are make eye contact and small talk and then practice corporeal politics. Can you talk about why these are so important in these times? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you mentioned those two. And, you know, I got, I have to say, um, number 12, make eye contact and small talk is maybe the one which people have reacted to the, the most. Uh, so let me, let me start with, let me start with the physical character of democracy. I guess that's where I want to start. That one of the things that the Greeks had right about democracy is that democracy takes place, um, with bodies. 
and in space, that it, that it happens it happens in public, that there's something inherently public about democracy, that democracy involves the physical recognition of one citizen by another and the physical recognition of one person by by another, um, that, that, it, that that has to take place. Now, in, in, in terms of resistance, what's so important about being with people, you know, the, the eye contact or number 13, the corporal politics, what's so important about being with other people is avoiding the, avoiding the sense of, of being alone. Right, because the way the way that authoritarianism works is that it atomizes. It makes us. It makes the people who are for it um, feel like they're with some kind of group, and it makes people who are against feel like they're alone. It batters them with bad news. It make, gives them the sense of despair, and it's 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 just at a human level extremely important to be able to be with people and and to be and and to be recognized by people. That 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 just morally, day after day, week after week, psychologically, month after month, year after year. That that counts for a huge amount. The the, the eye contact and small talk um, is it, it, like the corporeal politics is also a way of making sure that we take care of a certain you know modern or or, or whatever postmodern problem, which is getting lost in the internet. It's it's so easy to you know to spend hours on the internet. Um, and at the end of it, feel tired. And the reason we feel tired is that, you know, we, we're outraged by this, we're outraged by that. You know, we, we, we feel together with these people, we feel against the other people. But the risk is that at the end of that, we're tired, but we haven't maybe done the things that, 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 we, that we should have done. And there's, there's a certain trap in this, you know, that the Internet can become a simulacrum for politics. It's not that I, you know, I'm against the Internet, like the 20 lessons I posted on, on, on Facebook. But the question is whether the Internet is taking up too much of the time or too much of, you know, it's keeping our bodies in, in front of a computer for too much of the time. And, and that's kind of the default. That's where we're led to. And so the reason why corporeal politics is a lesson is just to say, look, we have to snap out of this at some point and make sure we're putting our bodies in the right place in the right time. And, you know, the, the, the other thing about so then then the other aspect of all this is making contact with other people. Um, one thing about the Internet is that it doesn't usually persuade like it can. It can it can unify. It can be used to plan. Um, it can get stuff around really fast, but it doesn't really persuade. Right. I mean, like one Facebook post, which has never been written, is the one which says, oh, you persuaded me with your rational arguments. You know, we because the Internet is, is one person, you know, alone communicating with another person alone. Um, it's it's it, it's it's hard to find middle ground, like the middle ground often comes from contact. And so the making eye contact with just the being in the place the bar, the church, whatever, with people who disagree with you is very, very important because otherwise there's the risk that we fall into this polarization narrative where we just, we're, we're two different groups. We can't make contact with each other. And we have to understand like the contact itself is really important. Even if we don't persuade people right away, just, just, just that we can mutually recognize each other as humans or as, or as citizens. That's very important. You know, that moment of eye contact, that moment of human contact can remain even if we don't persuade each other by our arguments, it kind of buys time, right? Like right now there's a huge amount of partisan disagreement and there's a huge amount of a sense that like the country's falling into two or more or more pieces. But later on, you know, we need the investment that we make now. And the investment we make now is that we actually get to know each other a little bit. And we have some kind of relationship, which maybe we can use later on. You mentioned the internet and uh, in the book you write, actually about televised news, but I think it's apropos. Each story on televised news is 
breaking until it's displaced by the next one. So we're hit by wave upon wave, but never see the ocean. And of course, tech companies like Facebook and Google have found themselves in the news in the wake of the 2016 election. And I wonder, what is your advice for companies like these as they grapple with their role in Russia's interference in the election, but also just in strengthening or at least protecting our democracy? I'm going to connect this this question to to your last one, and I'm going to start with us rather than starting with with the tech companies, because I think it's it's just very important, and this is why I liked your last question, to remember that repair is going to start in reality. It's not going to start on the internet. So we're not going to become the people who can change the internet or use the internet differently unless we just spend more time um, in reality in 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 the in the three dimensional world. Um, so the, 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 and, and there are things that we can do with the internet now, which will change the internet. So, I mean, one of the things that's in the book is establishing relationships, or I say friendships with actual investigative reporters and to remember that reporters are people and that they do the real work of taking their bodies to other places and collecting sources and verifying them and that we can affirm them. I mean, sometimes we can literally become friends with them, but we can affirm them by reading what they do by reading what investigative reporting before we log on to some platform like Facebook and then posting what we've already read rather than letting Facebook tell us what we should be reading, right? Like just that little thing, the subscribing to the newspaper, the following the journalists who we like, you know, like I have like six of them who I really like, following the people who you like, and then just as it were befriending them by passing their work on, even if the platforms don't change at all. When we do that, you know, we're, we're, we're changing we're changing the internet and like, and we have to do that. I mean, I think it's important to remember like to start with our responsibility before we get to the governments and before we get to, you know, to the big tech companies, but I'm happy to talk about the big tech companies. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll make, you know, let me start with the, with, with the critical part, which you've already mentioned that there is, there, there is, so to speak, a natural process or two of them. I mean, one of them is that the, the, the internet tends to divide up our attention into the smallest bit which can bear advertising content. And that bit of attention may just not be enough to process daily information that we need to be, you know, to, to, be, to be reasonable citizens. And the other process is that um, platforms find out what we like and give us more of it. Um, and, you know, that, and that tends to lead us to be confused about the difference between what's true and what we like to hear. And that's extremely dangerous, right? Because the only way to be a citizen is to know the difference between what's true and what we like to hear. I mean, as a person, you know, everybody likes to hear the things they already think or feel um, or want to feel or want to think. But as a citizen, you have to have a, a more objective notion of what society and politics and economics is, is really about, right? And, and what the internet tends to do, or what platforms tend to do is to collapse those those two things, one into the other, where people start to think that what's true is what makes them feel good because the internet is an endless resource of making you hear the same, hear the things that you already, you already want to hear. And that's deadly serious because that is precisely authoritarianism. When, you know, when you get used to, um, when you, when the distinction collapses between the stuff that the leaders tell you and the stuff that's true, that's authoritarianism. Cause with that, and then, cause without your sense of what's true, um, you have no way of bouncing back. You have nothing to lean on. You have no way of cooperating with 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 other people. So that's, I mean, that's dead. That, that at a philosophical level, that is deadly serious. 
and that, and that's where you kind of have to start. You can't start from the happy talk, you know, that we've been that like, you can't start from the happy talk that like, oh, the more information, the more connections, the better we will automatically be. I mean, cause that's just nonsense. It's just, it's just not true. I mean, that's what we said about the printing press. And then we had 150 years of religious war. It's just not true that more communications technology and more connections automatically leads to more enlightenment. It's just not true. You have, you have to start with, with, with a sense of responsibility about what this actually does to our brains. The, the, the second thing, and this is a point that everybody has made, is that um, we, we, the platforms have to be responsible about what's news and what's not which is a larger public conversation. I mean, I tend to think in the United States, we need to be, we need to have a robust conversation. <laughs> the circumstances are not ideal right now, I know, but a robust conversation about news as a profession, you know, and what, and what news actually is. Um, just like we, you know, there's a, you know, we know what law is or what medicine is. And that, and that, that has to be, that has to be taken seriously. You know, it, it just can't be the case that Facebook has, it's a news feed where things come up, which are just blatantly not news, either in the sense that they're not information or in the sense that they're not true. Right. Um, there, there has to be some kind of discussion and conclusions about what is news and what, and what, and what's, and what's not news. And this is just obvious. Everybody says it, but if huge percentage of the population are getting their news from Facebook or from Google, that means that these places are in fact sources are in fact sources of, of, of news. So, I mean, I think like they have to turn around the whole conversation. Like the, the way they start is, Hey, we're young, we're new, like we're shaking things, we're shaking things up. Right. No, like that's not true. You know, they are the establishment. They're forming things. They're making the world the way that it is, which means that they have to make a big jump up, you know, four rungs of the ladder to like to some much higher place of responsibility for that world. You mentioned the printing press, and I, I think of other technologies like the early days of radio and television and their impact on politics here in the United States and around the world. When I think about the polarization, for example, of a person's Facebook news feed, most of the people who pick up your book on tyranny probably believe in its premise or halfway there, but there are many, many millions of Americans who consider any critique of their candidate to be a partisan attack rather than a, an appeal to the protection of our nation's democratic, uh, small d democratic ideals. How do we break out of that dynamic, which sometimes feels more like a battle over football teams than an attempt to get at the truth about what's really happening? Yeah, I mean, the, qu the question to me gets at the difference, a basic difference between what, a, what the way a democratic republic works and the way that a postmodern authoritarian regime works. So if, if you want a postmodern authoritarian regime, what you do is you turn everything into a football game use your metaphor you know you there's both, that those guys have the they have the horns on their helmets and those guys have the those guys have you know um the uh the the, the daisies on their helmets and that's they're going to fight it out and that's the danger of you know the danger of that kind of endless partisanship is that politics politics just starts to seem like a contest where the friends and it's all about friends and enemies which is, by the way, you know, that's, that's, that's the important, that's the fascist definition of politics. That's Carl Schmitt's definition of politics. It starts from, the, from friends and enemies. You, you turn politics into friends and enemies, and that seems like something's happening. But in fact, nothing's really happening. We're just fighting it out day to day, you know, over the Internet or wherever in the United States. And what's not happening is policy. What's not happening is anything that can serve the citizens of the United States. And that's how postmodern authoritarianism works. That's how, that's how Russia works. You just, you get politics to be about these, these daily, 
partisan, you know, spectacular, often symbolic struggles. And then, and then the fact that nothing's ever happening, you know, that government's not doing anything, that the rich are just getting richer, that that just all, that all just sort of falls into the background. Whereas if you're going to make policy, then there has to be a factual world where people whose values are different can, can agree on what the facts are. Because, of course, values are going to be different, and that's fine. That's good. But we have to agree on what the facts are because then we can figure out how to apportion those values you know, into policy that we might, that we might agree about. So I agree with you that like the factuality is actually it's a it's a fundament it's a requirement of having a constitutional a constitutional order like ours. Now, how do we get back to that? I mean, p- p- part of it, you know, I wrote I wrote on tyranny like to 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 get people to do things because you're right a lot of people agree with a lot of the premises but like the point is to actually do things and that's also part of the answer. Right. If we just hang back and like agree with each other, that doesn't do a goddamn thing. You know, you have to if you if you actually you, you in fact you don't even know what you think until you go out and try to talk about it with other people or write about it in some kind of public in some kind of public place because if you just listen to people who agree with you like it's in some sense until you articulate the thought yourself in public you don't even know what that thought is right and so it takes a certain amount of courage to actually do it in a more in a more public way rather than falling back you know into into your own into your own team and just kind of letting it wash over you day over day. I mean, so, so just like just doing things is, is, is part, is part of the answer. And I think there are other things too. Like, I mean, that I start the book by with the constitution for a reason, which is that I really, I really do think that there are a lot of people out there who care about the constitution who may not care about other things that I, that, that I care about. And it is the case that I'm getting, I am getting, I mean, let's put it this way. Like the more time that comes, that goes by, the more reflection I'm getting from, you know, folks who may disagree with me about things like healthcare. Um, it, so it is actually possible, I think, to make an appeal on the basis of the Constitution, on the basis of of patriotism. And that's, I mean, that's another thing, you know, like the patriotism, which is less than 19, like that's really a live question and like one that, that, that I think people need a kind of check on, you know, like we've reached the point, if you've listened like to this discussion about 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 Mr. Moore, you know, down in Alabama, it, we reach the point where people will will openly say, "Well, like I I like Russia better. Basically, like I like Russia better than I like Democrats, or I like Putin better than I like black people." Right. And that that's like that's something that I think we have to try to hold on to, whether we're right or left. Like that, what we should be talking about is what's true and good for this country, about which we will uh, disagree, you know, but, but that the framework that we're in is, is this country, you know, not some fantasy land, you know, not some fantasy Russia, which nobody in Alabama, you know, is actually talking about. They're talking about some fantasy, you know, they wouldn't actually ever pick up and move to Russia, right? The idea of trusting Putin is just a way of like not liking other people in the United States. But the framework that look, you know, we're all, we're all going to be talking about this country, like that in an odd way, you know, that that could be a, that that's something that can get, you know, left and right, for lack of better expressions, at least some left and, and, and some right together, because th- there's a danger in different ways on both left and right of like spinning out into this world, which is neither America nor really anyone anywhere else. Um, it's just a you know kind of fantasy land, and, and 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 starting from hey, like we're living together in this in this country. Patriotism means making this trying to make this country better instead of just you know instead of just fighting amongst ourselves. That's you know that's a really simple thought, but it's kind of the best I've got, and it's what I do. Yeah, I really liked uh, lesson nineteen, which is be a patriot, and you you go through what patriotism is and what it is not. Um, do you think that the purpose of resistance no matter who's doing it, uh, 
a, a journalist doing investigative reporting, a lawyer who's defending refugee rights, uh, or an ordinary citizen who's showing up to a town hall wherever they live. Um, is the purpose of that resistance to simply protect communities and institutions from the Trump agenda, or is it also to persuade at least some of his supporters of the dangers of the course that they're setting us upon? Uh, I think it's, I think, I think it's all that and more. I mean, there, there, there are basic institutions that we, that we need, like the rule of law and, you know, and, and I would even go so far as to call factuality an institution because you, it, it can disappear. It's not a condition of the world. You can have, you know, you can govern and live in, in fiction so there are things that we need, like the rule of law and and like and and like factuality, um, and then our country, you know, basic constitutional institutions that we need, we can't do without. And so there's a there's a defense aspect, and then as you say, there's a communication aspect um, that I think the you know generally there there are of course some people who would who would openly say I would like the United States to be a racial oligarchy oligarchy or whatever, but not that many. And the way, you know, the, the way that you become, I mean, I'm just naming this as like one nightmare scenario. The way that you become a racial oligarchy is step by step by step by step where no one at any given point, you know, says, hey, this is too far or, hey, we have to slow down. But each point kind of normalizes itself. And then the next one isn't such a isn't such a big jump. Right. So you get, right. you know, you get you get wealth concentration so that one percent owns 76 percent of the wealth or, you know, you get voter suppression, new voter suppression laws in 22 states, um, you, you, you go step by step by, by, by step. And part of the reason I'm agreeing with you, one of the reasons why it's very important to be an activist is so that you can, you can kind of suggest to the other side what it is you're trying to prevent and get them to think about whether that's what they really want. And some of them do. You know, some of them do really want that, but not, but, but not every one of them does. But if they, if they go step by step, you know, without considering where the, where the steps lead to, um, then they might become the people who think it's normal. Right. So, so that's a very important part. And then the third thing, um, is in resisting, you're becoming the citizens of the country that you want to have, you know, so that if, you know, if we somehow come out the other end of this, it's the resistance or it's the constant activity, which makes us the kind of people, you know, who would be the citizens of, 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 of that better country. And it's, you know, so, you know, it's not, it's definitely not about, you know, just deterring other people. And it's definitely not about going back to 2016, God forbid, you know, it's, it's about, it's, it's about um, preparing ourselves for that, for that better America. Cause you know, the better America isn't just going to, it's, it isn't just going to show up, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of work and, and some good luck, I hope. Um, but when it does show up, it's going to be the things that we do now, which suggest to us what, what's important for the change. Like, so for example, for me, you know, the last, I've spent the last year, you know, primarily being um, what I wasn't before, you know, I'm, 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 I'm really a historian, but for, but for the last year I've spent primarily engaging in American public life. And there are, there's some things now that I, I understand about what a, be- a better America would have to be, especially things having to do with economic inequality, which I've only seen because I've been, you know, out there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's an experience. I mean, I'm just a tiny irrelevant example, but I think that's an experience that millions of other people are, are having in trying to, in trying to hold and trying to hold on to what's most important, if you actually go out and try to hold on to what's important, then you see what the things are that you need to add to that picture. You know, what, what, 
what an, what an actually dem- democratic America would look like or what an actually just America would look like. And I'm just saying things that like, you know, great activists who are so much more important than me have known their whole lives. But it's only in the it's only in the act of defense that you begin to get a sense of what the ideal really would look like. And you teach European history, your writing largely focuses on Europe, but there are clearly lessons in American history. America has its own special brand of white supremacy that is being tapped into. I'm wondering with respect to your specialization in European history, if we continue on the wrong track, that this idea of American exceptionalism will be part of our downfall? So let me say a couple of things in an introductory way, and then let me try to handle that question. I, I wrote the book about, I, the, the book, as you say, is, 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 is lessons from the European 20th century and a little bit the 21st for America. And the idea was that sometimes you can see your own problems more clearly if you see them you know, at a distance of time and space. You can recognize a universal predicament if you, if you have a way of stepping away from your own momentary concerns. You can see patterns sometimes better from a little distance. So that was, that was my idea. Also, European history is what I know about. So the, the book is, you know, the book is, the, the method of the book is to say, look, this is, this, is, this is not so different that we can't learn from it. It's different enough that it might catch our attention. Um, but then it's, it's, it's absolutely right that, you know, that, 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 that U.S. history has its own predicaments. But what, I, what I'm struck by is, at least at the moment, I'm struck by is the way that they kind of overlap. So when I, you know, when I look at this administration and the idea of making America great again, in particular America First, you know, Amer- America First is a reference back to, um, to 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 thinkers and traditions of the 1930s, which are actually at a kind of midway point between American white supremacy and and fascism. You know, because you have both, sometimes in the same individual or sometimes you know in this in the same movement. The idea that you know that that the you know the, the particular the, the the idea of America would be isolating a white America from blacks and from others, but at the same time those people were often sympathetic to to you know to Nazi Germany or to fascist Italy. I mean, America the very slogan "America First" is just a translation of Deutschland über alles. Um, so I'm actually struck by how the two things can come together. I mean, Charlottesville is almost too good of an example of this, where right. you have the Confederate symbolism and the Nazi symbolism merging. And people on the outside noticed that and might have found it odd, but as far as I know, nobody on the inside did, right? So there is a way in which there is a way in which you know the European stuff can help us to see the American stuff more clearly. But it's all it's all kind of one history, and it certainly is now. You know, the like the, the white supremacy is not just an American phenomenon. I mean, by definition, it's an anti-American phenomenon because to have a white supremacist country would be to destroy the United States. But I mean something else. It's the white supremacists strongly identify with Putin, who they see as the leader of, of a transnational global global movement. Um, and, you know, and, and, and vice versa. I mean, the, the Russian fascists strongly identify with the American fascists or white supremacists. You know, the, 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 Ameri- the, the translator of the most important Russian fascist, a guy called Alexander Dugin, is married to the most known American white supremacist, who's a guy called Richard Spencer. So th- th- it's th- this is all you know. Th- this stuff is 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 was and remains you know international in interesting ways. But yeah, I mean the American exceptionalism. There, the, the, look, let me say three three things about that. The first is, like, I, the first is going back to lesson nineteen of patriotism. 
I love my country. I mean, I, I see the things that are exceptional about it. The things that are exceptional about it, the things that I love about it, are the things that are exceptional. You know, that are different. That I think I understand because I'm, because I'm inside it. The the problem comes when you you know decide that what exceptionalism means is that you're not vulnerable to the stuff that everyone is vulnerable to. I mean, every every country is exceptional, and every country every country is vulnerable, and there are no countries in you know in the west that that I know anything about that are not vulnerable to problems of inequality or temptations of temptations of of some kind of right-wing populism or fascism we're all vulnerable to it and that the danger of exceptionalism is saying well you know the, our city on the hill is unbreachable right. which is which is just it's just not true and so you know the, the way the scenario works is that you, you spend too much time saying this can't this 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 can't happen and therefore, when it is happening, you say, well, this isn't happening because we're exceptional, right? And then the next thing you know, it's all flipped around. And the American exceptionalism is part of some kind of American right-wing extremism or American fascism, where the very things which you once thought of as special um, you know, in your country are, are now used as symbols for why, you know, for, for parts of your country or for one part of your country's population. So, I mean, every fact, this is, a, this is, you know, it's been said long before and better and better than I'm about to say it, but the fascism of every country comes with every, what, what fascism does is it takes the things that are touching and special about a country and makes them political and makes them public and makes them exclusionary, right? The flag is a, the flag is a great example. A flag under fascism is about how some people are us and other people are not us, right? Um, you know, ditto the cross, right? So it's, it's, it's the symbols that are already meaningful, which are then turned into a way of excluding some people um, and are put at the center of, of, of everyday experience. Like that's how fascism works. Like that's the relationship between exceptionalism and fascism. The love for country, which is natural, you know, in which I share, becomes this, be, becomes a, a way of saying, who gets to love the country and how, and this is, and this is decided, right? So yeah, the American exceptionalism does, does, does worry me. Um, it can, it can disarm us when we shouldn't be disarmed. You close the book with a discussion of the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity. I wonder if you could just briefly explain what each of those means. Yeah, sure. So one of the things I did write when I was trying to write this book in early December of last year was I was trying to, I was trying to talk to young people about where they were and what history is. And I was trying to find a language which would explain, you know, this, this, this jump that I think a lot of them were feeling between a sense that the world was kind of going in the right way to a sense that everything was despair. You know, that moment that where a lot of people were just shocked by Trump's victory. And, you know, the problem with shock is that it, is it can be disabling. And what I was trying to explain was like, what I was trying to, I was trying to criticize two things. You know, I was trying to criticize a bit um, the American tendency since 1989 to, to think that, well, there are no alternatives, right? That's my least favorite phrase, I think, in English. There are no alternatives. There are no alternatives. History is over. You know, capitalism is just going to produce democracy here and in the rest of the world. Everything's fine. That's what I mean by the politics of inevitability. You know, that story, that narrative in which the individual doesn't really have much responsibility because we always, because we know that things are going to be um, work out regardless. You don't have to ask about what's good because because history, as it were, is or is automatically producing good stuff all all the time, and when that turns out not to be true, which it's not, you know, when you hit some kind of a crash, when inequality gets to be too great, um, when irresponsibility grows too great, and something like the Trump phenomenon happens, the danger is that you shift from that story of inevitability to a story of eternity, 
which is what Trump tells. And he tells it, he tells it very well. You know, the, what a turn the politicians do is they say, yeah, um, you know, forget about the future. Um, the only thing that's happening is that we are constantly being over and over again, regularly attacked by our vicious enemies, whether it's from within or whether it's from without. And so history, instead of being the story of progress, becomes a story of doom where, you know, it's just, it's just the blacks are out to get us or the immigrants are out to get us, you know, or the, or the Chinese are out to get us um, over and over and over and over again. And that's resonant for people. You know, to some extent, understandably, that's resonant for people who have lost their sense of the future because they no longer believe in social advance because inequality is so great. But, but it draws them into this. It draws them into the scenario where politics is just, you know, as the fascists used to say, politics is just about who's a friend and who's an enemy, as opposed to actually making the country a better place through policy. And you can shift from one, you know, you can shift from one to the other. And then once you get into the politics of eternity, you get used to this like pulse of enmity, 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 um, which we're falling into now, right? I mean, this is how Trump governs. It's the constant scandal, the constant outrage, right? And then we forget, oh, government's actually supposed to be about policy. Nobody expects the government, the federal government to make meaningful policy at this point, right? So you can fall from one to the other. But where I'm trying to land, and in a way this has been a theme of a bunch of your questions, where I'm trying to land is that history is the thing which allows us to get between those two things. You know, the story of progress was always going to be bogus, and the story of doom is equally bogus and even more dangerous, you know, if, if, if you look at, if, if you try to be, if you try to sort of keep yourself in history, whether it's European or American, you know, if you keep yourself in history, what you're then trying to say is, yeah, that, there are these ideas, but these ideas aren't actually true. They're not actually, that's, they, that's not how the past and the future actually work. You know, the past and the future, the past is something I can try to understand. And once I understand a little bit, then I can see what's possible and what's not in the future. And then I can do my own little thing. And then I can do my own little thing to try to make the future better, better than the present. And that's a very simple idea, but it's like that idea, I think, alone is enough to, to, to shake us out of the, of the funk, you know, to keep us from falling, you know, whether we're for Trump or against him, from falling into this idea that like, well, okay, it's all, it's all doom and gloom from, from here on out. History, what, what history does, I mean, it doesn't, give, it doesn't give us any easy answers. It doesn't give, us, doesn't give us answers at all. But what it does do is it tells us like, okay, here we are, we're individuals, we have this much authority, we have this much power, and whether or not we choose to use it, now that's what's up to us, right? That's right. where we are. When I listen to you uh, speak about your book and our current moment, there's a sense of urgency in your voice. And I wonder, are you hopeful about the future of American democracy? Or do you think we're going in the wrong direction? What does the year 2017 mean for you, especially since Trump's inauguration and the publication of your book? Well, I'm, I'm going to flip it around. I mean, I, what, what I talk to people about is how do they want to remember 2017? You know, let's, 2017 is a turning point in the history of the U.S., when historians write about 2017, I've got a, I think I've got a pretty good idea of what they're going to say about the first year of the Trump administration. But what are they going to say about us? You know, or if you're like if you're 25 now, and you're telling your grandkids 50 years from now what you did in 2017, what do you want to be able to tell them? I mean, that, that's how I see it. Because the thing is, the, these moments where these moments, which are the, the, the decisive moments, they're also the moments when, when our own actions matter more. If a democracy is just kind of chugging along, and if the state is functional, and there aren't huge levels of fear and anxiety and inequality, our actions maybe matter a little bit less. But when the stakes are high, when like the rules of the game are actually at stake, 
which they are now, then our actions matter a lot, a lot more. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm hopeful is a fine word. I mean, I'm neither optimistic nor, nor, nor pessimistic. What I think is that history is open and sometimes it's more open than others. And now happens to be one of those times, the things we do this year are going to resonate outward with much more force or the things that we don't do, you know, the things that we let happen, that's going to have greater consequences than it might, than it might, than it might other word might other might otherwise have. So, I mean, if you're asking me personally, um, I feel okay, you know, and the reason I feel okay is because I feel like I'm doing something. And I think that in general, people are going to feel better if they're doing something. And, um, you know, whether that will, whether that will be decisive or not, you know, is a, is, is a different question. I just, I, I would just say that the, the, the key, the key is the, the regular action and the regular action, the public action, the action with people that we might not have known before. That's, that's what's, that's what's going to matter because it's not like history isn't going to answer this for us one way or another. You know, it's not that like, it's not that it's not that it's fixed one way or the other. It really, it does have to do with us and the things that we do right now. I want to thank you for not only reminding us of the history, but also our role in helping to make it. And I encourage everyone to pick up the book if they haven't already. It's the kind of thing that you can read quickly, fit in your pocket, carry around with you, and refer back to uh, as often as necessary in these perilous times. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to The Resisters. No, thanks. Thanks to you for what you do. And thanks to everybody who's listening for what you do. That's what's important. That does it for this episode of The Resisters. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Professor Snyder, Sarah Silverstein at Yale, and Tim Duggan Books. You can learn more at timothysnyder.org, or follow Professor Snyder on Twitter at Timothy D. Snyder. You can, of course, find On Tyranny and Professor Snyder's other books at your local bookstore and everywhere books are sold. And you can listen to more episodes of The Resisters on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresisters.co.